Hello, 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 and welcome to the Wheel Talk podcast. It's been a while since I got to say that. <laughs> it sounds weird. I am Abby Mickey. I am joined by Lauren Rowney. Lauren, hello. Hi, everyone. It's I was just saying it's been a really long off season between chats. Podcasting off season, letting our vocal cords rest. <laughs> and Gracie Elvin. Hey, I want to shout out to all those people over summer that asked if we were going to be making a comeback. So thanks for hanging in there. I'm very happy to be back. (laughs) And with us this week is Tilda Price. Hello. I just got something in my eye, so it seems like I'm just crying out of excitement, which may as well be, but (laughs) not quite. (laughs) We are so excited to be here and we have a ton of things to cover. We're going to start by talking about Ronda Van Drenta, the most recent Women's World Tour race. We're going to get into a couple listener questions. Uh, But before we do that, I would like to just really quickly explain the name of this podcast. Because if you go on the internet and you search for Wheel Talk on podcasts, there's like three or four other Wheel Talk podcasts. Um, One I think is about tractors. One is about Emory University, which is hilarious. And one is about ceramics, also pretty funny. Oh, that's uh, I listened good. To that one. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, but the reason that we decided to name this podcast the Wheel Talk Podcast is because Wheel Talk was the name of my first ever podcast back in 2017 that I started uh, as a side project when I was still racing my bike. And the goal was to do interviews with riders and kind of introduce people to the women of the Peloton because I felt like there wasn't enough coverage and it evolved into the Vox Women podcast, which I did with Lauren. And then that eventually I went over to Cycling Tips and we had uh, the Freewheeling podcast and now we're here and I felt like there was something kind of beautiful about coming full circle and coming back to Wheel Talk as the name of the podcast. So that is why we are called the Wheel Talk podcast. Uh, talking in circles was a really great, we, I really loved that one. Unfortunately, there, there were also other podcasts called that. Um, but since I talk in circles a lot, I was like, that's such a great idea. Anyway, (laughs) we'll talk is what we settled on. So that is where we will be for the foreseeable future. The wheel talk podcast. We are here. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) Hopefully we're back. (laughs) And we've got a really exciting year in store for everybody, so let's dive into it. Now, we're going to structure the episodes a little bit differently from podcasts in the past. Instead of just diving into the racing right away, from now on, we're actually going to start each episode with listener questions. So if you have a question that you want us to try to answer, shoot us a message on Twitter or we're at the Wheel Talk Pod on Twitter. You can find us on the Escape Collective Discord where we will actually be doing live podcast recordings in the future. So if you're not a member of the Escape Collective, I highly recommend that you head on over to escapecollective.cc and sign up. It's a very exciting project, and we're happy to be under their umbrella. Today, we're going to start with Drenta because we have so many listener questions that are kind of, we want to talk a little bit about the races that we missed while we didn't have a podcast and the listener questions dive a little bit into some of those. So we're going to start with Drenta and kind of move things around, but in the future, listener questions first. So anyway, Drenta, Tilda, I've missed your race recaps. You want (laughs) to give us a little play by play? Yeah, I should be able to remember, shouldn't I? Um, I don't think very much happened, so this should be quite straightforward. 
Um, so the race was quite heavily reduced on, well, on Friday they took out all of the flat cobble sections because of the snow in Belgium and uh, in the Netherlands. And then on Saturday morning they announced that it would be pretty heavily shortened from 150k to 95k and most of the roads that were meant to be used were taken out and it was basically laps of the Vanberg, which they were meant to do three times. They just did six times and then went straight to the finish from there. So it was very contained geographically. It was just a short, I think, 14-kilometer lap that they did. Um, I kind of predicted that it would be pretty explosive because it was short and with that big climb in at the end of every lap. But actually, it was very, very quiet for the beginning of the stage um and it wasn't until around 50k in i want to say that the race was split up but but only by a crash um which i think it happened well it happened like a split second before the um tv coverage started so we didn't see exactly what happened but it must have happened quite near the front of the bunch because only a few riders came out of it unscathed. Uh, riders were either taken down by it or caught behind it. And on those really narrow roads in the Netherlands, you can't really get around it. A lot of riders ended up in a ditch on the side of the road. And so from there, there was a group of eight riders who were out front, who were kind of really pushing on, perhaps surprisingly, because there was a good argument that you could have neutralised the race, either officially or by the riders themselves. But with a lot of teams represented in that group and it being the first time all day that the race split up at all, they were clearly keen to push on um, and SD Works were quite well represented up the front. And then from there, it did become a little bit confusing with all of the groups on the road. Um, essentially, there was a second chasing group and then there was a third chasing group which had Lorena Vibus, Elisa Balsamo and Marta Bastianelli all in it who were kind of the pre-race favourites. And they were around... Um, at the start, 50 seconds behind the lead and then that just came down slowly and the race kind of just came together from the back, I would say. The the third group managed to make their way up to the front group um, by the last couple of laps. On the final lap of the Vanberg, there were um, a few attacks. Interestingly, so SD Works had, in the end, five riders in that front group, so they were pretty well represented, including Vivas, but they weren't just sitting around waiting for a bunch sprint they were clearly wanting to make it hard so we had misha bradevold attacking um seems like dsm was sending a lot of riders up the road because any team without a sprinter and dsm um had charlotte cool sitting out due to illness they kind of had no other game plan except to launch these attacks as pointless as they might have seemed at the time that was all they had to do um, at that point. So there were a few attacks, yeah, in the last, well, in the in the penultimate lap, but mainly in the last one. But with SD Works and also Jumbo Visma, surprisingly doing a lot of work, uh, no one was really getting away on the flat. And so, yeah, on the run in towards the finish, it was pretty clear that it was going to come down to a sprint. And yeah, as you may have predicted, Lorena Vibus took it by three bike lengths I would say over um Susanna Anderson of Uno X and Micah van der Doyne of Canyon. I think by the time that it was clear that it was gonna come to the finish in a sprint and she had four teammates there, it was really hard to bet against Vibus. Um 
so yeah it's a funny one because this race often ends in a sprint but not always and actually arguably the parkour on saturday was a bit harder than previous races because there was more climbing um and i think people thought there was less of a chance of it being a sprint but in the end same as same as it would have been probably and lorena vibis gets her third win in a row there and a fourth win in the row for um sd works this year i was really surprised that it wasn't more explosive i expected yeah like you said the we've seen some really aggressive racing on the vanberg before and it is a short climb but it's steep so it's just take something out of you every single time which kind of favors poppier riders and i I expected it to be a really, really exciting race, and it was. I think a lot of riders suffered in the cold. Like, I know Balsamo really hates the cold, so I think she struggled a lot with that. And she would have, it would have been really exciting to see her sprinting at her best against Weebus, and we'll definitely see it in the upcoming races. But it was, it was an interesting race. It was definitely, it was impressive that they even managed to have the race given that Drenta Act, which is uh happens in the same area and was I think that supposed to be the day before Friday, it didn't happen because of the snow. So they canceled that one. So it was impressive they even they even had it. But Yeah, I think that's I mean Gracie can speak to this as well, um, because she's raced this race so many times and has had a lot of success there. But it's um this race like how how it sort of pans out is on several different things. Weather has a massive impact there, and that can affect a rider's sort of mentality as well. I mean, I think with you know Friday it was horrendous conditions. It was it was really tough out there, and then to sort of psych yourself up to get out there on Saturday when it was still very cold and um, the race started later and they shortened it and it's kind of like I can understand the motivation can start lacking a little bit then. But in terms of how the race is raced and won, it, it again, it comes down to the weather, um, the races leading up to that point because Drenta is like a beast of its own. It's so different to un- any other race on the calendar. And, um, you know, those cobbled sections and if there's wind, normally that just blows apart the race. And there's just so much nervousness going into that race because you're so aware that, you have to be like really on point on that day because if you make just the smallest mistake in that race, it really does impact the outcome at the end because, yeah, um, if you're lacking teammates, um, the crashing, all those elements just determine sort of what we see at the end there. But, yeah, I, I always found it as a rider a really peculiar race. Mm. I hated I, I, it when I did it. So. <laughs> I think most riders hate it. I definitely agree with you, Lauren, though. That's what I was thinking as well. I think that impetus really left a lot of riders. You just have, like you, exactly like you said, you need so much motivation to front up to that weekend in the first place. And then if it's chipped away by worrying about the weather, worrying whether or not the race is going to happen or not, not knowing until that last minute if they were going to change the course, that really would have just worn down a lot of riders before the race even started. And most riders don't, like, it's it's a weird thing because we put ourselves in the most uncomfortable situations all year round, but you're still trying to avoid discomfort. 
So it's kind of this like <laughs> funny balance of being a top cyclist of like, I know I'm going to suffer, but I also don't want to suffer like that. I don't want to be really cold or I don't want to be snowed on. I don't want to like crash on those awful cobbles. I don't want to like know that I'm racing and then not like, it's just this constant grinding away of yourself all year. And those moments, if you've already had a few weekends back to back, you're just going, just cancel the bloody race. I don't want to do it anymore. I just want to go home. Like it's fine. (laughs) I mean, you like being able to anticipate the kind of discomfort that you're going to be put in. If you, if you know, okay, I'm about to do Drenta and it's going to be really hard and there might be crosswinds, which are going to be really hard. And like, positioning into the Vanberg is going to be really hard. Like you can anticipate all of that, but then, yeah, it's, if you can't anticipate the, what the weather's going to do and you can't anticipate what the organizers are going to have to do to make sure that the race actually goes on, your cup is, is only so full (laughs) of Mm. discomfort. And I think you could see, you could definitely see that discomfort in the riders. And if you, if you look at, you know, when the racing started, it started at pretty poor timing with that massive crash, but at least it showed us why sort of the race ended up the way it was as well. A lot of people lost a lot of teammates, except SD Works, it seemed. Um, but people were nervous, uh, and rightfully so. And I don't think that's a reflection of the women's peloton and the level it's at. It's just that race can be really fast, um, and I can understand why riders were getting nervous Um in those conditions and sort of it's like this chain reaction of actions that happens when when you have a massive crash and then people start making mistakes um and you're not maybe your head's not fully in the game you're just thinking let's just get to the finish line today lauren you were saying off air that there was like a lot of commentary on twitter about uh the about the race from people who were disappointed in how it went and i feel like you know what I would love to see those people <laughs> get out on their bikes and do Drenta in those conditions because and it would to be have been fair, so brutal. That it was a few, you know, I'm not going to, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but. Um, you can do whatever you want. This is our podcast. Yeah, well, there we are, are still no, a few. We are beholden to nobody. Good. <laughs> There's still a few dickhead mammals out there who, <laughs> like, I, I was just thinking to myself, if you dislike our sport so much, why why are you watching it anyway and then feeling the need to go online and comment about it? I'm like, you clearly get something out of it, but you just want to troll. Um, but to be fair, most people were just saying um, you clearly don't watch the whole women's calendar or the, the comments I was making, this isn't a reflection of the peloton. So it still riles me up, and that's why I try not to, to look too much at that stuff. But, again, going back to my point, it's – you know, we see it in the men's peloton too. And actually speaking with with one of the riders yesterday who raced on Saturday, um, she's been in the peloton now for over 10 years. And she was just saying like, Lauren, you can't believe how fast the peloton is now. And we've heard the same thing in the men's peloton. It's just so fast. And it's with every sport. We're just advancing in science and technology and there's so much money going into these things now. It's just... We've got some athletes that are coming up really quickly and maybe it's this discussion we've had before that haven't had that time to to really develop um, to the skill they need to be, you know? I want to talk a little bit about the sprint, but specifically I want to talk about, I mean, I think it kind of 
we'll get into SD Works and their current dominance and everything for sure um, when we go over the other races a little bit. But they, there were questions at the end of the year last year when we knew that Lorena was going to SD Works about how they were going to replicate or even try to challenge the team DSM lead out that, that, that DSM had really perfected for Lorena. And I think we saw at Drenta that they have no problem <laughs> pulling off a textbook lead out because their lead out for, for Lorena was amazing. And all she had to do was deliver and she did that by bike lengths. And so I think whatever whatever questions we were asking at the end of last year uh, have already been been put to bed. <laughs> yeah. We already don't need to worry about how SC Works is going to handle a lead out for Lorena. I think it, once we get into the cobbled classics and like next week, uh, the week after Trofeo Alfredo Binda, once we get into like Gent Wevelgem and Flanders and all of that, we'll see how the team is going to manage having Lorena, Kopecky, and Demi Vollering because Strada was really interesting, the dynamic there. And we were talking a little bit on the serious, pretty serious bike racing podcast, which is uh, the the podcast of Dane Cash. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend about how the team is going to juggle Lorena and Kopecky. But I think that we've talked about this in the past, like Kopecky is not really a sprinter anymore. So the question that I have for us is Lorena has proved that she is the best sprinter in the women's peloton. We'll get into the Charlotte cool stuff in a second, but I think she's, she's quite good. Like she's going to be really hard to beat, especially if SC works, puts all of their cards in her basket and kind of focuses on her. So when we get into the races coming up, she's also, if at Omloop had newsblad, she was climbing incredibly well. So how is the team going to manage Lorena when it comes to the other races, when she, we know if it comes to a sprint, she can win, but also they have a ton of other cards to play. What do you guys think? I think they just have a, they've always had dominance no matter what their roster looked like even five or seven years ago with Lizzie there and then Anna van der Breggen and they're always juggling big yeah big names so I don't know I think that they like Danny Stam actually does quite well with managing all of those big um, abilities and they're, they're quite disciplined. I feel like we talk about it every year of like, oh, will they pull it off with all of these big riders? And they always do. <laughs> so I think Str- the Strider outcome was actually um, less common with that team than it – it hasn't really happened really hardly ever. So What do you guys think about Strata? What do you – like, I- what do you think about that dynamic? Because I – it was so interesting. Like, I, they're obviously professional riders. They're going to – they're going to put it behind them and go do their job, but they're also both champions. So is that something that's going to like sit in the back of their minds that that happened, that they, that they ended up, I don't know, in this awkward position, was it, do you think that everyone's reading into it too much or I feel what do you like, guys think? <laughs> okay. Uh, there was a listener question to do with this. Uh, I yeah, think they kind of wanted us to break it down because there's like a question, would Demi have ever gotten across if um, Lotta hadn't come across? Because, you know, with the thing with the horse and all the chaos that happened, that really threw her a little bit. Um, 
and we know how strong Faulkner is. So it's hard to say at that point in time when that was happening, it didn't feel like she was really closing that gap. Um, and then when you had the two of them together, they worked really well together. And then in my head, I was thinking as they were coming into the final kilometers and were like, they're going to make the catch. Is Demi just going to go full gas into the bottom and then make contact with Faulkner and Lotta's going to launch? And actually she did take the lead, but then I think she was thinking, while I'm here, I'm probably still feeling good. I I'm going to climb as hard as I can. Um, and then I think for both of them, Lotta was thinking, well, I'm in good form too. Surely I'm, maybe I'm going to outclimb Demi today. And then it was kind of like, at least from the interview that I heard in Dutch was, oh, it was just a bit of fun to kind of race each other up the climb. And then at that point in time, when your heart rate is probably at 200 beats and you're coming into those final corners and you can hear the crowds and everything and you're very aware, I think, Faulkner is way back at that point. I don't know what you do in that moment. Do you look at your teammate and kind of like make eye contact and go, is it for you or for me? Or, or maybe we're going to actually ride across uh, the line like Balsamo, uh, not Balsamo, uh, Longo Borghini. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know. I've never been in that position, so I can't say. But it it looked awkward. Um, I think the, I feel- the more awkward situation wasn't actually the sprint it was that Kopecky joined Demi and she wasn't expecting that like it seemed like in the interview that she was she was more confused about why Lotta like jumped up yeah and bridged to her than she was about the sprint at the end and also like I don't know how much uh, Demi having to basically come to a standstill to get around Faulkner on the climb impacted that climb maybe Demi would have just climbed away from Kopecky mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been a problem, but Faulkner got, I mean, Demi was trying to fit through a gap that was already pretty small. Faulkner pushed her into the bar- into the barrier. Totally. I mean, it's legal. Is it cool? I don't know. Um, but that, that would have really impacted Demi's speed going up the climb. She had to like back off and go all the way around. So had that not happened, Demi might've just like, dropped Faulkner or dropped Lada on the climb and it wouldn't have been a sprint at all. So there's like so many really interesting little bits that happened even before the sprint that I think people got so wrapped up in the sprint and Demi's interview like immediately after the race that you kind of missed a couple of those key moments that led up to that awkwardness. Yeah, and I think... Uh, yeah, go to Sorry. Yeah, and I think maybe that also is... Uh, part of the explanation as to why Demi was so upset like I don't think it was all about the sprint finish like she was very upset and clearly quite shaken by the whole day and I don't think that just comes down to what happened with Lotta in the sprint like she had nearly crashed into a horse and then seen this horse fall over on the side of the road and then got caught by Lotta when she wasn't expecting it and then slammed into the barriers by Faulkner like I think she just had a really bad day and the emotions came out that way um I don't think all of that because you know she was even she was like in tears when she was talking about um how Chantal had told her that she should believe in herself for this race and everything she was clearly having an emotional day and I I don't think like it would be easy to watch those interviews and assume that was all in reaction to what happened with Lotta but I think there was yeah a bit of a bit more emotional turmoil going on for 
for Demi that day. And also Lotta seemed like so unbothered about the whole situation. Like she clearly just like unbothered whatever. most yeah. of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely agree with all of those points. And I think that was a really good point too, Tilda, in that there just was so much that happened that day. Um I, I think Lotta did exactly the right thing. I think jumping across was the right thing to do. Um Demi might have been surprised by it, but I think tactically that was what the team should have done. And then I think that final, I think, just shows us just their different personalities and maybe different cultural um, values. Not not that either of them were right or wrong, but just that Demi wasn't expecting Lotta to race her at the end and Lotta expected to race at the end. So it was just a bit of a miscommunication, such a dramatic day. And it was, yeah, it was like pretty funny to commentate because we were all just like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> but um yeah just the those aftershots of them waiting for the news you know their body language was just so tense and um they weren't giving each other much love and then like there was a, a shot with them in the truck behind the podium and they just were not making any eye contact and it went for like 30 seconds that we had to commentate that bit too <laughs> oh, <God>. like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I think they cleared the air pretty quickly, but yeah, as Tilda said, emotions were high already, and then it was just such a strange finish that I think they would have smoothed it over pretty quickly back in the team car or truck or whatever in their meeting. But yeah, that would have been quite a difficult situation, and I think they actually both handled themselves relatively well with all of the media around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I feel like I like Demi more and more. Like when was the last time? Never, not in my memory that we had a Dutch winner that was as emotional as Demi. And I just love it. Like she, she's <laughs> completely just like wide open with her emotions. And uh, I love Anna Vandebregen, but she's also very like stoic, pretty like, you know, Voss is the same. She's got some incredible victory celebrations, but in her interviews, you know, she's very, she's very calm, very put together. And Demi just kind of lets her emotions fly. And I think it's just amazing. I love it. Not very Dutch, but she does live in Switzerland. So, but then one could argue the Swiss are even worse. So, Um. (laughs) anyway, okay, let's, let's backtrack a little bit um, to talk about. I want to talk about Suzanne Anderson and Uno X and yeah. this podium finish. This is their second podium finish in a world tour race. And it's a team that we talked about last year a lot because it's brand new and they've done a really, really good job setting the women up for success. They've signed some really exciting new riders in Amelie Dederickson, who former world champion used to ride for Bulls Dolmans was on track has some health things, but I think that she's coming onto the team in very much like a leadership guidance kind of role and then they have maria julia conflonieri who is an incredible rider so i think that this is really like i i personally was just so excited to see uno x finishing second in a world tour race behind Weavis, given everything that they kind of struggled with last year as a team and to see them make that jump already in, in their second year of existing is I mean, it's exciting for me. I like it. I'm I'm happy about it. (laughs) Me too. It's always good when you see a new team actually doing what they say they're going to do, which is building year on year and developing young talent as well as having good leadership with experienced riders. So, yeah, completely agree. It's nice to see 
good sponsors and a good management and nothing dodgy going on and actually some good results. <laughs> yeah, nothing dodgy indeed. <laughs> Every time you think women's cycling has grown, you're then something happens and you're like, what the... For fuck's yep. sake. <laughs> we won't get into it. I'm sure that we'll talk about the specific situation I'm talking about. We'll talk about it down the road, I'm sure. Um, what else about... What about... What else about Drenta? And then we can move on to listener questions. Um, why were Yumbo Visma doing so much work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was, I was like, Was Corinne? I mean, they had Corinne. Yeah, she was there. And, uh, yeah, I think they might have got two riders in the top ten in the end, but... Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. The Anna Henderson was was tenth, and uh, and Caroline Swinkles, Caroline, mm. Caroline. Oh, and, and why was uh, Corinne? Swinkles was eighth, um, okay. but they yeah they didn't. Corinne finished fifty fourth, two and a half minutes mm. down. So that doesn't it doesn't make. I mean, Corinne is obviously not the reason that they were doing all that work. Maybe they're just prepping for when they have Voss back. Yeah, so I was, I was just like, I don't know. Yeah, they're a confusing team because they can pull it together and do work like that when they want to. But what? why are you doing that when you don't need to? Like, I don't know. It was a good show of strength, and I think it does bode well for the next few races. But it seemed like a bit of a misplaced effort, perhaps, on Saturday. Yeah, I was surprised that we didn't have like more work coming from, I mean, I guess Trek Segafredo, they were down a couple riders at that point and Balsma would have been more affected by the weather than, than other riders. Like she was in her jacket the whole time. I think she was pretty miserable. She's been vocal in the media about how much she hates being cold. I think a lot of Italians just hate the cold. Um, so like wh why they would do much work, especially with SC works, having the numbers and, Kind of if you look at the top, the people who would have contested a sprint, I was really excited to see Lada Hintala in, in there. Mm. She finished sixth, and she's she finished second behind Bosmo at, at a stage of Valencia, which is super exciting. It was her first race back after having a baby and retiring and uh, then coming back into the sport. Um, but she also said she was really impacted by the weather. She also was in that, like, she was in that eight-person group, the that uh, was ahead of the big crash. So I think she would have done more work than most of the other sprinters in the peloton. So is it? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why Yumbo Visma was working. They're practicing. Coming back to, it was just, again, Drenta can be an odd race. And at that point in time, when you're half a team down and it's just chaos and you want to get through it. Sometimes the, the firing between, the thoughts and the actions in the legs aren't lining up. So, yeah. Yeah. So, we've got some questions from some lovely Escape Collective members. Martin S. Would love to hear you and your team's take on the Marta Cavalli news, potential, potential long-term impacts of concussion being at play, and whether you think she's been rushed into the back quick too quickly into the end of last season. Um, Tinker Magoo also asked about the high intensity the team in the team's statement about Cavalli missing Strada they said she would return to high intensity training and he asked how that would impact her recovery so to get into Marta Cavalli I actually reached out to FDJ 
uh, yesterday to ask how she was doing and if they if they had any news on her well-being. Um, kind of to wrap it up for people who don't know what we're talking about. Basically, she crashed in the Tour de France uh, Femme of X-Wift last year. She took a couple months to come back. And then she raced two one days in Italy and the Tour de Romandie. And then this year, she started her year at UAE, the UAE Tour, and really struggled. Um so that's kind of where we're at. So after the UAE tour, the team issued a statement that she was going to stip, skip Strata, that she was still struggling with some lingering effects from the crash. And she said in an interview that she was feeling anxious in the Peloton, that she was having a hard time positioning in the Peloton, which UAE tour, potentially, if you are feeling a little squirrely in the Peloton, not a great place to start your season with the crosswinds. Um, but the team said they didn't say anything about a uh, concussion. They said she's doing good. She's determined to get back to her very best level of fitness. And the team is glad that she's taking time to herself to recover and think about something other than cycling. She spent some time in a local school to talk about women's cycling recently. And he sent me a picture of Marta doing a PowerPoint presentation about women's cycling. Oh, that's great. Um, so I think, yeah, the I'm happy that she's the team is allowing her as one of their best riders to take the time that she needs to recover because I think her targets are coming up later in the season and it's not necessary for her to be racing right now if she if it's something if she, if she can't if she doesn't feel comfortable so I'm happy that they're giving her that window and I hope that we see her back in the Peloton later this season. I don't know if her coming back to race at the end of last season was really rushing the recovery because it's like a totally different beast to come into the final races of the year than the start of the year in, in UAE. Like she would have come into the two races in Italy, which were not world tour. So they, they aren't as fast. The racing isn't as hectic. And then the tour of Romandy is a stage race, which is also raced very, very differently. So I think she would have been okay to come into those races rather than UAE. What do you guys I, think? I think if I was a director of FDJ, there's a few things to unpack first, but, um, I would have sent her to Tour Down Under and Cadell's if they yeah. wanted her to just get a bit of warmth, good weather. Again, she's Italian. The good weather is good for their soul um, to start on an easier level because even though we had um, some good riders there, the level wasn't at the same level as UAE. So I think that would have been a nicer start to the year than let her go home to Italy and and prepare for the later spring races. Don't put her in any of the hectic races. Um, you know, maybe targeting the Ardennen classics. That would have been a better sort of game plan. But again, like I'm not the director sportive, but I think, you know, that crash that she had in the Tour de France was really a horrendous crash. You know, she walked away with broken bones and a concussion. And I think we can't underestimate um, PTSD from such events. Like there's probably a lot of trauma st still there. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't spoken with the team or Kavala, but I can speak from experience that um, sometimes you need to work with a psychologist after 
such a crash like that because I, I know I didn't when I had a pretty horrendous crash and all those things came out about seven to eight months later in a really bad way. Um, actually, like it, it manifested my my eating disorder, for example, because I was trying to gain control um, because mm. in racing you can't control the environment. So I think that there's a lot going on with her and um, I just hope that they make sure that she she gets all the rest she needs and just slowly ease her back into it. And there's been multiple riders that have had really horrible crashes and it's taken a long time for them to come back. Amelia Farland, for example, she was out a really long time. Yeah, it was like two competition. years before she was able to be competitive again. Exactly. So I don't think you can rush these things. Um, she's really young. So it's not like she's at the end of her career and trying to to scrape together the last few years. Um, but that's just my personal feelings about it. Mm. Concussions really are well so said. weird. Like, yeah, yeah, really, really well said. Concussions are weird. I mean, like, we don't know enough about concussions and they can definitely, like, crop up many, many, many months after you have sustained the concussion. You can have, like, no symptoms and then, like, four months later it can... Mm. And I think, like, you know, that... <laughs> Crashing is a part of the sport, um, and we all accept that risk when, when you ride a bicycle. Um, but sometimes the way a crash happens is something that is just so far left field that, yeah, it, it's it's hard to sort of get past that sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we I hope that she does get better. But the fact that they've been fairly vague about why she's having a break, I think that just tells us that she does need a bit of privacy and that they just want to just look after her for a little while, whatever is going on. So I think it's good to respect that and not speculate too much. Yeah, she's definitely riding her bike. She's posted some Instagram stories on her bike. So she's, yeah, but but no rush for her. She can take all the time she needs. And I mean, like, that's also a good segue into the fact that they've signed a really great new talent who who had a good start to the season um is los at a haste yeah the zwift the uh, 2022 zwift world champion or and she e won it again this year yeah she won it again yeah yeah there you go she's um she's really exciting and she raced a little bit professionally before like she was on park hotel before but she was one of those riders that kind of got left out in the in the pandemic post pandemic team kerfuffle and she tweeted her power numbers and was asking for asking <laughs> teams to sign her and no one signed her and an ftj took this chance on her and i was curious how she was going to fit into the team because she obviously would have been she's really strong and sometimes the the riders that are really really strong that don't have a ton of experience on the road they can't they have a hard time with the team aspect of cycling but she showed it to her down under that she is like more than willing to just gut herself for teammates she was riding all out for grace brown at tour down under and it was awesome and then won cadells very impressively so a, a really exciting new rider for them that i think is going to pick up a lot of the slack that was left by by Brody Chapman leaving the team um, and her legs, maybe not necessarily her experience, but they have other riders on the team that are experienced that can 
can fit into that role. So. Yeah. Watch this space. She's going to get some more results this year, I'd say. Mm -hmm. 100%. All right. Next question. Uh, Dr. Disco. Great names. <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear a discussion about the debacle of the live coverage of women's Omelette Pet Newsblad. So, Omelette Pet Newsblad, we talked about this like in our group chat. The Omelette Pet Newsblad is often like shorter coverage. And it's interesting because Flanders Classics is a, is a organization that I think hold, I hold them to a higher standard because they've made a big they've they've been very vocal about the equality they're trying to make it equal prize money and and all of that stuff and they have their women's races finish after their men's races so that there's people at the finish line to cheer on the women but one of the impacts of that is that they have the men's live coverage going and then the women's is after so it's not actually I, I found it interesting that everybody was so up in arms about this because, yeah, once you kind of look back, this is pretty normal for Omloop to have not a ton of live coverage. Um, it's still a bummer, <laughs> but I think it's, I don't know. We talked, we but it was World Tour this how, year, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. This was its first year World Tour. Yeah. Was, so I think that's yeah. why as well the expectations were higher because I think Tilda was, has spoken about it a lot too, is that, part of the conditions about being world tour is, you know, X amount of coverage, but we kind of expect at this point in time that you're not providing the bare minimum. And again, when you're linked to the same organization under that umbrella of Flanders classics, that you would assume it would be on the same page as get Wolverham or um, Flanders itself. So I think, yeah, I don't know. Has anyone spoken to the, to the race organization isn't no but i remember last time the they had the the last time they had like a bunch of attention negative attention was i think the prize money and they were really scott sunderland is he yeah yeah all these australians still living in belgium i don't get it the women's race caught the men's race one year in that news blood oh that was right. a good one <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. One thing to think about, though, like if we compare and contrast Strada to Omloop, is it such a bad thing having the women's race in the morning when you can have longer live coverage and there were people at the finish? And I was at the finish of Het Newsblad, and I don't know, there is this argument that people will stay around for the women's race. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, people left. It was freezing cold. People had been there all day waiting for the men's race. Yeah. Actually, if the women finish in front of the people who are already waiting for the men's race, then you still have this idea of people being there for the finish. And I think Strada Bianchi was a lot. Like, there was no crossover between the coverage. The men's didn't start till after, I mean, the live coverage and start after the women had finished. We got to see plenty of it. It, you know, people didn't tune out because they'd already been watching racing all day. I do like the idea of swapping them around in a like symbolic way to say that we're not just shoving the women's race in the morning. But I think in a lot of practical terms, you can get better outcomes by doing that. And if we're talking the amount of live coverage, like I would choose what we got as Charlie Bianchi any week over what we got at Omloop. So mm -hmm, I agree. I don't know. I feel like it's also worth looking at like Perry Roubaix and having the women's race the day before because. Personally, I prefer having the women race 
a different day than the men because then they get all of the attention. Like there's not, it's not like you have, you know, there's like two stories about the women's race. And then as soon as the men's race finishes, there's five stories and those two stories get pushed right off the homepage. So I feel like having the women just go on their own day, you get more opportunity for live coverage, more attention from the organizers to have everything go smoothly. You get, you know, an entire day that's dedicated to the women and it's a lot more work obviously because then you have to close the roads for an entire extra day and all of that stuff but i feel like we're at a point where the women deserve that i certainly think for really iconic races like paris-roubaix is a great example and the tour de france it's necessary we need to have standalone events and the thing is with with, i'll just use paris-roubaix as an example is you know, the people who go to watch that race, they come from all over Europe and they they set up there for days, sometimes a week in advance to get their spot. So you're always going to still have the crowds there and you're going to get the really passionate women cycling fans showing up too. Uh, and like you said, then, then the women are getting the coverage that they deserve. And that's exactly what we saw with the Tour de France last year. It was always the question... You know, after the men's Tour de France, will people hang on for another week and want to watch the women? And and they did. And maybe the audiences were the same and a little bit different. I mean, I don't tune in for every day of the men's Tour de France, but, you know, I'm a diehard women's cycling fan, so I did for the women's. And I think we do have that. We have fans that watch both, and then we have fans who are just into the women's side of the sport, which is totally fine. But that's kind of where we're at now. Um yeah, I think what's interesting about the live coverage discussion is that it's we we're still having it and now it's it's not so much of wanting there to be live coverage, it's wanting there to be adequate live coverage and enough live coverage. So it's it's annoying that we still have to <laughs> talk about it. We've definitely come a really really long way in the last two years when it comes to the live coverage. Um, like it's kind of wild how, how far we've come in two years, but it's, yeah, it's still a thing, still a thing we got to talk about. And I feel like for some of the races that like you do need to see at least a hundred kilometers of it, or when we got to see three hours of Flanders, it was last year, right. That we could see from a hundred kilometers to go. And that was amazing. It's like the first time you'd really been able to watch what happened because it was always a guessing game when we got to the 40 kilometres to go. You could follow what had happened on Twitter, but it's never quite the same as like visually seeing who's doing what. And it's just great as well to see all the workers that once you get to that 30K to go or 40K to go in such a long, hard race, they're probably fading to the back toward like at that point. So you never got to see those people, but now, now you can for those races. And I feel like Paris-Roubaix is the same race. You want to see all of it because each sector is just so important in that race. And it's kind of like the same with Flanders is each, um, you know, climb or cobbled sector is, is important in how the race develops. So. Yeah. Hopefully we get start to finish live coverage of Paris-Roubaix this year. Yeah, like Selda Price, you don't really need to watch the whole race of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Carl Wilhelm asked if we could discuss the implications of Weebus climbing so well on Loop Pep Newsline. I feel like we tapped into this a little bit, but 
it definitely makes for an interesting dynamic at SD Works, and uh, also it must be terrifying for other teams. SD, <laughs> SD Works is is dominating right now. They've won every World Tour one day in Europe so far, and if we look at the upcoming races, I mean, Binda is really interesting. They've traditionally not sent their A team to Binda, so it'll be interesting to see who they're riding for at Binda. Um, I don't think Kopecky will be there. Uh, the news broke over the weekend that her brother had passed away on Saturday. Um, so I, she's racing uh, Nokora Corsa on Wednesday, she said, but I don't think she'll be in Italy to race Binda. Um Will they send Demi? Because that race has been won by a solo rider in the past. My favorite addition ever was the, the year that the weather was just horrendous and Cash and Iwadoma soloed to, to victory. I think that was 2019. It's just incredible. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they send. It might, the, their streak might, streak might end at Binda. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but at the moment, it's just like, on the European scene, it's just SD Works dominance. They're they're crushing it. It's insane. <laughs> they didn't do this last year. They were barely a conversation. I feel like Lotto won Strada, but we had so much more Trek Segafredo dominance in the classics last year. And so, and I think last year I th we spoke about it at the end of the year, but um, it was a hard year for the team with with Amy and um. You know, she she was such an integral part in that team. Um, she was one of the captains, so they really felt that, and you could see they were a little bit lost on the road. Um, but this year it seems to be gelling extremely well. And I think one of the listener questions were, was, will anyone be able to match them? And I think with Trek, they're down to 13 riders this year, so I don't think we're going to see the same dominance um, Ellen Van Dyke, like you mentioned, is is pregnant, which is amazing, but she's a really imp important part of that team. Um, so Brody Chapman, can she step up to that sort of Ella Van Dyke role? Those are some big shoes to fill. Yeah, <laughs> massive shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's just all about timing. I think we're going to see a few riders come good in the next few weeks. Like I think Van Vluten's on her way up um track they've built more of a climate team this year than a classics team plus having ellen out and still having lizzie out i think that's a huge hole for them but they've just filled the team with less classicy riders anyway um but yeah i think going back to the question too of um uh, blank weber's climbing so well i think that actually at newsblad isn't a lot of climbing so you really, if you can have a, a, a nice armchair ride up to the Mur, you can be a really powerful rider and get up there in that group. So I think that she's just in really good form at the moment, which means that you can climb pretty well at that kind of level and that kind of race, but she won't be featuring on the super hilly races. So I might eat my words there, but I doubt it. She's she's a true sprinter. She yeah, imagine. <laughs> I think she would need like, like Gracie said, it, an armchair ride all the way to the final kilometers in that one because that to just hop on uh, Marlon Russo's back and she yeah. can carry her all the way to the finish <laughs> of Flanders and then she can win. I just think the peloton's too fast and strong and it would have to be the most conservative race Flanders 
um, for a sprinter to really win that race now. But again, yeah. well, I think by it. then the team will shift their focus to Demi and be riding more and, for for Demi and Lotta and Lotta. Yeah. yeah, she's. <laughs> I mean, she's not a sprinter anymore. That's for sure. She's. We could see them coming to the line again together at Flanders. Yeah, you could definitely see that. Yeah, that's going to be good. <laughs> well, then Kopecky wins, right? Because then they just agree. Because. Was Demi, Demi won Flanders? So. Did she win it yet? She ha- I she last hasn't year. won Flanders. Oh, no, Demi. A lot of, lot lot of, of won won last Flanders. Yeah. yeah, but Demi's not won Flanders, so that would be a race that she definitely wants to add to her, to her palm- <laughs> palmaris. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Okay, continuing with the questions. Uh, Eugene asked also i hope i'm pronouncing everyone's names correctly uh will trek let riolini fly at the major stage races or will she be tasked with domestique duties i this is an interesting one because when we were watching the queen stage of the uae tour where gaia and elisa Langaborghini just rode away from everybody else on the climb um there was a debate in our group chat about if elisa was going to gift gaia the win and that did not happen. Aliza won the stage, won the overall, and Gaia took second. And that was potentially a race that they could have given to Gaia, um, with probably Aliza having a, a lot bigger targets later on in the season where she's going to need Gaia to ride for her. But it seemed like Gaia didn't really care too much. She was pretty stoked to be a part of that win and be a part of that result and, and be a part of Trek. So yeah, I think we will see Trek allow her to go for some wins. It might be like, I don't know, once they've, once the general classification has fallen where it will at the, at the Giro, for example, maybe they let Gaia go on the queen stage and try to take, take that. Um, as an Italian, I'm sure it would be a huge deal for her, but it's interesting. I mean, she's signed for the team for a couple years, and I think that she's got she's got years to win to to be let off the leash. And this is when she should be a domestique. Is early in her career when she's young, she's learning. I don't think there's anything wrong with her being tasked with domestique duties for the time being. Well, and they yeah. they did let her win this weekend, didn't they? There was yeah. a so. Which I think, um, yeah, she won a small race in Italy where her and Spratti, is that right, came to the finish line and she get, they gave her the win. And I think that's like more of an appropriate place to do that than the Queen stage of the UAE tour. Um, I know I argued elsewhere that I think it was fine that Lisa won, um, but I do see the argument otherwise. But but yeah, I, th- I think um, it's no bad thing to be on domestic duty at the the best slash second best world tour team in the world and um most riders that you talk to who are in kind of their second or third year on the world tour uh are always very grateful for the time that they got to spend learning in that kind of role and they end up better riders for it i would say um you know looking at riders like charlotte sakul who just spent a year working really hard for another teammate the way that that's benefited her now is insane and would have been she might not have got that if she'd been thrown into leadership so i think i think it's probably good to let a rider like gaia really like develop at her own pace and 
use her strengths to work for the team. And it's also a much less less high pressure situation if you're riding on the front or in a small group for for a teammate. You can kind of just bury yourself and try and get a team result and you're not worrying about things like measuring your effort or the tactics or things like that. And I think actually taking a bit of pressure off young rider's shoulders can be a good thing because you don't want, I don't know, I think riders having too much pressure and stress on them too young is not always uh, a good thing in the long term. Um, so I think she might be a rider that we see in, I don't know, in the Giro in like breakaway days. I know she's had a bit of experience doing that already, but I don't think it's going to be a shame if we don't see her up there on the biggest days and we see her being put to work. Like that's not a, it's not any insult to her ability um, riding in a team role. So, yeah. I We should actually just briefly talk about Charlotte Cool and her sprinting at the UAE tour because that was a very exciting storyline for the future of the season. And watching her and Weebus sprint against each other, she was Weebus's lead out girl last year and I think learned a lot in that role from her. But now DSM have this perfect lead out train that is hers to control, um, which is really exciting. And we saw her... At the first stage of the UAE tour, you know, it was like there were crosswinds, there were crashes. We was, was impacted by a crash before kilometers to go a little bit, and Charlotte Cool took the win. And then stage two, Weebus took the win, and then stage four, Cool took the win very impressively. And that that dynamic is something that's really exciting for the future. Um, I like that we have this storyline of like they used to be teammates. Now they're rivals <laughs> and like the, the student becomes the master situation. It's, it's cool. Yeah. I was really enjoying those sprints. <laughs> yeah. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> I love the overhead shots. So like I would, I'm, I think I say this on every, every podcast is like, go rewatch that sprint and watch it from the overhead because like, it's just so cool to see people that are so fast making decisions and you can see, like, Lorena Webb is, is not just super fast, but she's able to make decisions in those last few hundred metres. And Charlotte Cool is also the, doing the same thing, and that's what makes them head and shoulders above everyone else. For sure, they're probably faster than everyone else anyway, but they're just, like, being able to think in those millisecond moments. And, and that's what I get really excited about because sometimes their lead-outs don't work and they have to figure it out for themselves. And, uh, yeah, I really hope that we get... A, a ton more of those kind of uh, battles this year because it was definitely very cool to watch at the UAE tour. Gracie, as someone who's been up amongst it in sprints in the past, uh, can you just explain how that third sprint, how impressive it was that Cool won that third sprint given that she was in just god-awful position <laughs> in the sprint and managed to like weave her way up and win the day? I mean, that was, to me, that was my favorite my favorite day of the four-day race was stage three, the final kilometer. She took a risk because she went on the fence and, like, sometimes that's a bad thing to do. And you've seen riders more so in the men's peloton actually crash in that kind of decision-making point when you go on the side. Um, but someone left the door open for her and she took it and she's just so rapid and like I was saying, it's just cool to see someone just not giving up. Like they're still able to make decisions. They're in the red, like the lead out's been going for kilometers. So you kind of have to be already not at your threshold, but pretty close to it and really just not 
taking any wind at all because every watt is counting at that point. And then to see that right at the, the the peloton fan across the road, it was Garishi that kind of stuffed it up for SD work. She just sat up. I think she just kind of had a bit of a brain fart in that moment because usually she's actually quite good as that final lead out and and just having the riders kind of then spread across the road in those last couple of hundred metres, there just wasn't that many gaps and to see Charlotte Cool just weave her way through it and just go bang, 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 not hitting the wind, taking every good line, seeing all of those doors open and then just seeing her accelerate like turbo mode. It was so impressive. Last question. Dan Owens asked... Which team is going to join SD Works and Truck Segafredo at the top? He said it seems like both FDJ and Movistar are trying, but they both have riders out with injury. We talked about Cavalli. Emma Norsgaard broke her collarbone at Strada, so she's out for a little bit. Um, but Movistar have a couple of exciting new signings. So let's dig into that a little bit. I... Personally, I'm excited to see what Movistar does. Anamik has not been on her best form so far this year. She said at Omloop that she she wasn't feeling great. At Strata, she wasn't feeling great, and we kind of saw that. Um, it's Anamik, so I'm sure that we will see her dominating at some point in the season. But they also have the Florida Mackay-Leanna Lippert duo that, I mean, those two riders are so good, and I'm really excited to see what they do at Movistar and how leaving DSM after so many years impacts them as riders. I would also <laughs> say, um, yeah, Dan said that maybe they haven't worked out how to incorporate Liana Lippert and Florida Mackay yet, but I think they did pretty well at Omloop now. Like they, I don't know, they just kind of hammered it on the front of that group, which it it's not the most complex of tactics, sure, but it's pretty effective. And um, Animique probably would have had a much better day if she hadn't had a puncture when she did. Um, I think they're both both the new signings are working really well there. Um, I know Liana Lippa especially has spent a lot of time with Animique training. I think they're in Tenerife for the moment, which is always a good thing for gelling. And she's not exactly a rider who usually trains with teammates, so that is good for the summer and the stage racing. Um, I think Movistar are really my big. Um, shout to be challengers of SD Works because they're they're the team who have um loads of options in the way that SD Works do because FDJ you could say they have strength but they don't you don't look at their rider lineup and think well like five five out of these six riders could win. Whereas like in the Omloop lineup I would have said that all of Sierra, Mackay, Lippert, Norsgaard or Van Vleuten could have won. No offense to I think it was Audbet Bionique was the sixth rider there. But, oh, but she's like one of the best domestiques in the Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think they're the yeah, they're the they're the one team who are really built in that mold of SD works of having loads of different options, not just to race well, but to actually win the race. And Emma Norsgaard will be missed for these flatter races, but I do think that with the combination of Mackay and Lippert, they have some really good options. And Elena Sierra is always forgotten about. I feel like she, every season starts and she shows her strength again, but because she's been quieter in maybe the stage races and at bigger races like Worlds that we forget about her a bit, but she is a really, really good rider. Um, So I think, yeah, they're the team that I'd be looking at. 
the main thing that will be interesting is, is how how they approach races when they don't have Van Vleuten because I she's not going to do a particularly heavy classics campaign from now on. Um, so yeah, into races like Gent Wevelgem and stuff like that, where what is their plan there? Um, but no, I th- I think they are working really well together, and that is the main thing that you can ask for for teams is like cohesion and putting your not just having strengths but actually turning that into a strong team ride mm-hmm. I agree yeah um, I'm curious to see how a couple other teams manage the season like Canyon Stram has had a, a lot of turnover for this year they have a couple new riders and they lost a couple of riders so their team is really young. I'm curious to see how they put that together. And I mean, like Micah Van Dune already finished third at Drenta. Kasha, I think she said at Strata, she's she's not feeling 100% yet. Um, but I, that's a team that like, they used to be one of the teams in the conversation as a top team. And they just kind of haven't put any results together. Similarly, EF is growing as a team and I'm curious to see how the signing of Georgia Williams and, and Allison Jackson, how that impacts a team full of really strong riders that didn't have much in the way of uh, direction on the road last year. So those are two teams that I don't think are in the conversation to join SC Works and Trek Fredo, but I hold out hope that they at some point i don't know maybe we've been burned too much by canyon stream at this point like can we still say that they <laughs> it's been how many years and they still haven't quite figured out how to get no on race. that top step <laughs> no i think that they can definitely maybe resign themselves to being a really good development team a really good place to learn the ropes and yeah that they're certainly not where they used to be. Another team worth mentioning that could be ch- the challenges as well are the UAE. Um, they've got Persico, Bastianelli, and Garcia, and a really good, strong lineup of good workers and domestiques. So I think that they could be interesting as well. And um, I think Persico, you know, she had such an amazing season last year. I'm not sure if she'll be able to back it up, but maybe she'll get better. <laughs> hope so yeah yeah that's that's true there that's an interesting team and they've split into their world tour team in there and they have a development team as well and signed most of valkar so really interesting stuff going on over at uae and then another team i'm curious about is i'm always curious about is uh the jaco alula is that how you say it because we're a year out from the olympics again They've got a lot of track riders in their team and it's managing the track and the road program with those riders because a lot of those trackies have so much potential like Alex Manley and Georgia Bake on the road. Um, I'm really curious to see how 2023 evolves for them. Yeah, so the second part of Dan's question was um, how does Jaco Lula support Faulkner? She's had some incredible rides, um, but can the team support her to win? And it's an interesting question. I think Faulkner herself is very green and uh, incredibly strong. So I see her winning at some point, but 
I don't know how much learning she's she will do at Jayco, especially like we just talked about Guy Riolini being a domestique. Faulkner is like very fresh in racing and she's already the leader for that team. And I don't think that that will benefit her in the long run because you need to learn how to win a race. And if she's not doing that, then you can't. Yeah. So it's an interesting, that's an interesting situation with Faulkner at Jayco. Like she had an incredible ride at Strata, which might be overturned due to a glucose monitor device she had on her arm that the UCI is currently investigating. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, I think, I don't know if Jayco will want, well, I don't know if Jayco has the team to support Faulkner in stage races or like climbing races. Their team is really full of, like you said, Lauren, sprint, like uh, track riders and sprinters. And I think for them, we'll see their team put together incredible teamwork at, you know, getting Webblegum perhaps, or some of the flatter races. And Faulkner might be in a situation where she's kind of left out to dry a bit. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, well, before Strada, um, Amy and I were writing a little like preview piece and looking at the whole Jayco team. And it's just like, who is there for races like this? There are a lot of good like ruler type riders, but for races like Strada, Flanders, stuff like that, they just don't really have options. I don't know if there was a bit of a, if, if they kind of missed out on some signings over the winter, but the team is just not particularly well-rounded this year. And yeah, the, and the presence of all those track riders is obviously they're great in certain races, but there's a downside to having those kind of riders as well. Um, and I think it it it's not good for Faulkner and it's not good for the team because if you're being thrown into a leadership, but you have really really strong riders behind you, that can make it easier. But she's basically just being thrown out on her own in every race mm-hmm. and probably having to make a lot of decisions by herself and support herself and. Yeah, I don't think that's the best way to learn. So I think uh, if they want to support her, like, they really need to just sign some more riders. I don't think there's that much they can change in this classic season with the riders that they have necessarily, because just on paper, it's not necessarily there, which is a big shame, um, I think, because they do have, yeah some individual good riders but it's just never never seems to be coming together for a team that you look at and go yeah that's a really well put together team for this for this race it just doesn't happen very often okay we have one final question and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap up the episode i think that we we talked about a lot of the races that have happened so far we didn't talk a ton about the australian summer a little bit about tdu but i think that we will be talking about the australian summer races and some of the talking points out of that, um, for me, a lot of like Trek Segafredo's Australian transfers is a very exciting thing. And I'm sure we'll dive into that in episodes to come. So we've talked about UAE tour. We talked about Omloop. We talked about Strada. One more question and we'll wrap up this episode for this week. The final question is from Joey Jojo who asked if the women's tour might not happen in 2023 because they do not have a title sponsor. So the women's tour announced last week their route 
uh, which is five stages. One of them is a criterion. They had to drop a stage because they've, yeah, they, they've got no money, which it kind of ties into the women, the men's tour Britain being canceled last year and some sponsorship woes. And the women's tour has multiple times lost their title sponsor and been in danger of cancellation and, and they're back, back in that spot. So Tilda, you had a little bit of knowledge about it, I believe. Yeah, so um, in in the press release itself that they put out, uh, they confirmed that, yeah, they don't have a title sponsor, but also perhaps more concerningly, they they don't have sponsors for three out of four of the jerseys, uh, which is not great. And yeah, the the Telegraph, a newspaper in the UK, um, have a bit more info on this, and they have estimated a £500,000 shortfall, which is pretty hefty i think i think previously it's been more like a hundred thousand that they've been lacking at this time in the year so that is a lot um uh our colleague owen rogers made the good point that actually with with races races that are six uh days long now teams can have seven riders which is great in some ways but it's another added expense for the races so that is another reason why perhaps it's shorter but yeah yeah it's kind of, I think in, in in some ways it's good that they've pushed ahead and planned the stages and put the route out and things like that. But um, I think there's a pretty high possibility of that race not actually going ahead because that is a big, big monetary gap to fill. And if you only have one jersey sponsored, I mean, that is, that's not just lacking a little bit of money to um, fill out the prize money or fund the broadcast. That's kind of the money that you need to run a race so yeah that would be a pretty um upsetting cancellation because it's a it's a big favorite and they're pretty stalwarts of the calendar but i think a lot of things with yeah the cancellation of the tour of britain and just the general um economy around cycling in the uk is just not good at the moment it'll be a bummer if that race gets canceled purely because it's I mean, it's an exciting race. They finally had live coverage last year for the first time. Um, and I think that it's good to have a world tour race outside of the continental Europe um, during the, the height of cycling season. So I think we'll all be bummed if that race is canceled, but they've found themselves in this situation for and they've managed to pull it off. So I guess we'll see. Unfortunately, I think that the first thing that will go if they can't find the funding, the full funding will be the live coverage. Um, Does which, that mean it, yeah. it it will lose world tour status then? Is that what happens? I mean, or? they didn't have live coverage in uh, in 2021 and they kept their world tour status. So yeah, And the same way they ride London last year as well. Yeah. Yeah, true. The UCI yeah, scene. we still have Ride London, but I just because yeah, exactly. Tilda's it. making a face, and I agree. <laughs> I have a vendetta against this race. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut it. We we're almost like at an hour and twenty minutes, so I think that that's good. the The final kind of news item that we had on was that Ellen Van Dyke, as Lauren mentioned, Ellen Van Dyke is pregnant, which is really exciting. Um, we've she's the fourth rider for the in the world tour this season to announce her pregnancy. Chantel Vanderbrook Black announced last in November of 2022 that she was pregnant. 
Joss Loudon is pregnant. Omar Shapira is pregnant. So we have four World Tour riders who are pregnant. And um, this is just like incredibly exciting turning of the tide in the way that the women of the peloton see maternity leave and having a baby while they're still racing. Ellen definitely wants to return for Paris, uh, the Paris Olympics in 2024. And Chantal, I think, is planning to return, or at least direct. It's so exciting from the perspective of a mother <laughs> and a woman. And I don't think that this these are the only four people that are going to announce pregnancies in 2023. And yeah, it's really cool. We've come a really long way in women's cycling in a, in like two years. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I'm not a mom, but I'm stoked and so inspired. And I, I, In my career, I just thought it was career over if you wanted to be a parent a female parent <laughs> and uh yeah it's just so inspiring to see women being able to make choices for themselves now and not have choices made for them so yeah it's it's not just good for women's cycling it's good for women's sport in general and it's good for women's rights in general so i think that's it's it, in some way cycling is one of the leaders in maternity leave which is pretty cool yeah, really cool. I mean, we have multiple women in the Peloton who have baby, the brand new babies. Like Wada has a one-year-old and he went to team camp with her. And Eleanor Barker had her son at team camp, at Uno X team camp with her. Might bite them in the butt because they might end up with quite a few <laughs> riders pregnant. <laughs> but they also, uh, with the new- That's yeah, contagious, leave, isn't it? Yeah, it is contagious. With the with the new maternity leave rules, they can sign riders to fill those spots. And Trek Segafredo interestingly said that they weren't going to replace Ellen with a with a uh, backup rider, which is we'll see how that how that impacts their season. But yeah, I think just I just wanted to mention this because it's just so exciting, and I think it's something that we'll talk about more this year as the season goes on and as we see Lizzie come back because I'm excited to my knowledge about that. she will be the very first woman in the world tour with two babies. <laughs> yep. Just amazing. She's paused her career twice to have a baby. We'll talk about it. We'll get there. But this is it. This is I'm gonna end this episode before I just continue <laughs> talking in circles. This has been Wheel Talk our first episode <laughs> thank you so much for listening thank you to matt denif for our incredible music and thank you to you three for joining me today it's good to be back Thanks. yay <laughs> <laughs>